Welcome to A Little Bit Radical, a business podcast from Standing on Giants. I'm Rob, your host. Join me as I meet people and organisations who are doing things differently, challenging the status quo and yes, might just be a little bit radical. Imagine a world where the most celebrated people in society were the most honest and trusted politicians, where music stars amplify messages of inclusion and anti-corruption, and young people are empowered to make the changes they know are necessary in their communities. This is the world that my guest today is working to create. Blair Glencourse is the founder and executive director of Accountability Lab, a global NGO working to empower communities to take action on governance issues. Blair is a world expert in issues of citizen engagement and anti-corruption. Today, we're going to talk about his work and, of course, the little bit radical way in which he goes about it, from naming and faming good government officials with the X-Factor-style campaign Integrity Icon to delivering their annual strategy in a rap song. There's going to be a lot to talk about here. Blair, welcome to the podcast. Rob, it's, it's great to be here. I've heard so many of these podcasts, it's exciting to be part of one finally so thank you thank you very much Blair so if you are a little bit radical and not only are you on this podcast but we've heard a little something about the kind of way that you go about your work so we know you are what do you think in your early life set you up for that that's a very good question that perhaps I should be lying on a couch with a therapist this does sometimes get nicknamed the therapy section of the (laughs) of the podcast yeah But I think, and as you touched on in the little intro there, part of the idea that I am radical about is what in the literature is known as positive deviance, which I don't like the name of, but essentially is that it's better to reward people, identify and reward people doing the right thing than punish the people doing the wrong thing if you want to change something. And thinking back, actually, at school, I think I always realized this. I didn't have the words for it and obviously didn't know I was going to build something of a career and an organization around it. But when I was punished for doing something or not doing something, I didn't feel that that got the right reaction from me. I saw it creating the wrong reaction in others too. But if I was praised for doing the right thing, it encouraged me and it it got me excited and I wanted to do it again and I wanted to get others to do it with me. I suppose that was the, the beginnings of some of this radical thinking. The way that we set up incentives within our society is not always the way that gets people to do the right things. And that has been a theme from there, I suppose, onwards in my work. That's a really great point, I think. A couple of things I'm thinking of. We had a guest called Linnea Bywall from Alva Labs, who's a psychologist, who talked about behavioural change. And I'm going to butcher the actual statistics, but it was something like, in order to adopt a new behaviour, about 20% of what makes that up is actually being told about the behaviour. 50 or 60% of the adoption is down to positive reinforcement of that behaviour. And so psychologically, what you're saying makes so much sense. The other thing that comes to mind is how the threat of punishment doesn't stop crime. Often politicians go to stronger sentencing as a way to reduce crime, and it never works, does it? Tell us a bit more about that, about this kind of positive reinforcement model and areas that you've seen it work. I think you're absolutely right. It's not to say that compliance and enforcement isn't important or that we don't need rules, but if people exist within a system individual behavior exists within that system. So your point is right. If you crack down and and provide even harsher sentences for people, I'm not sure that's going to fix the system. All it does is punish one person that is the product 
of that system, what we really need to do is change the way we collectively engage in that system and the way that we understand the norms and the values that govern behavior within that system. And the challenges come when, when the rules don't correspond to those norms and behaviors, because then no one adheres to the rules. And that's when you begin to get all sorts of pretty serious challenges. I think we realized this in our work fairly early on within the anti-corruption and, and government accountability space. And if you think about it, there's a lot of finger pointing at corrupt people. And of course, those corrupt people should not be stealing public or private money or breaking the law. But what about all the people doing the right thing? What about the people with integrity? What about if we focused on them and then tried to expand their zone of influence and, and the amount of people that are around them and learning from them rather than just trying to throw bad people in jail? What, what would that do? And that is the sort of situation we found ourselves in within this field about 10 years ago, uh, 11 years ago now with the Accountability Lab. And so we began to try and change the narrative a little bit, as you mentioned, away from the naming and shaming and towards what we called naming and faming with this in mind, the idea of making people famous who have integrity rather than for being wrongdoers, really focus on the do-gooders. As my colleague put it at the time, catch people doing the right thing, which I thought was a really fun way to put it, which encapsulates this idea quite well. And at the same time, make it fun and sexy. It was when Pop Idol in the UK was was really at the height of its power. And we were watching, uh, I was in Nepal where we do a lot of our work and, and watching the Nepali version of Pop Idol with our team there. And we started talking about this and saying, what if we had a TV show that celebrated honest government officials instead of people that can sing or dance? And so the very next day we mobilized some volunteers and they went out and collected nominations from people all over the country for honest government officials. Then we brought them all together. We picked the top five, filmed them, put the films out on a TV station and asked people to vote for their favorites by SMS. This was before WhatsApp. So uh, they could call in as well and send us names on Facebook. And it just took off. We couldn't believe it. We put about four or $5,000 into this and we had about 4 million viewers the first year. Wow. Yeah. Hundreds of thousands of votes. We had a big ceremony in the capital city and had a red carpet and made it Oscars-like. When the winner went home to his community, hundreds of people piled onto the streets and they were chanting, he is, he is our icon, he is our, our winner, you know, he, he is a representative of the people. There was sort of grassroots energy around this in a really, really interesting way. And so we realized we were onto something here and that in many places where there's just been years and years of mismanagement and misgovernance and corruption, and even in places where, where there isn't necessarily that on a daily basis, providing this burst of positive energy and this, these role models can really get people excited about the kind of change that can happen. And ultimately what it does is begin to rebuild the social contract between people in power and citizens. And that's, I think, what we need to solve many of our problems today. Absolutely amazing. It's such a unique approach to this problem. Certainly a little bit of a radical idea, I'd say, fitting with the title of the podcast, so it's brilliant. We're going to talk more about your work at, at length as we go on, but let's uh, take you back to you for a second. First of all, can you identify a point in your own life where you've had a behaviour change or taken up something new because of this kind of naming and faming policy or positive reinforcement? I mean, the, the reason this all came about, I think, was actually, again, in, in Nepal, I'd been working at the World Bank on these sorts of things and then with a think tank and was talking to some young people in a very dusty, difficult part of Nepal about the challenges that they faced. And I was expecting them to say, we need better clean water, we need better education, we need all sorts of public services that, that weren't there. And actually what they said is, no, what we want is the people in power to be responsible and accountable. 
and we want politicians to stop being as corrupt. And a light bulb went off for me, and it I think began to pull together this this strand of thinking that had been bubbling away a little bit because these young people had amazing ideas to fix these problems, including very positive, creative approaches, but just didn't have the support that they needed. I don't know how many of your listeners are in the aid world or have experienced or interacted with some of these big international institutions, but it's very difficult to access them. Um, and for ordinary people, very difficult to understand how your ideas might feed upwards into the kind of decision-making that happens at these sorts of places. And I began to realize that maybe we could play a role in, in doing that and, and act as a bit of a bridge to channel some of these ideas upwards, to celebrate some of these amazing people, to support them, to build networks, to grow their ideas. For me, the, the professional, I suppose, and the personal, to get back to your question, begin to overlap a little bit because it it then became a bit of a vocation for me and that's what I've been doing ever since. Yeah, absolutely. So you felt the effect on yourself and have applied it in your work. Makes absolute sense. I'm glad that you mentioned all the young people who you are working with to bring their ideas to the fore. Presumably some quite radical ideas or little bit radical ideas again. But for you, do you feel that you've become more or less radical as you've got older? More radical. Uh, I know the conventional wisdom is you get more conservative as you grow older. But for me, I really think it's the opposite. The more I've been exposed to these sorts of things, the more I've seen inequalities and corruption and mismanagement of the kind that we're talking about, the more I get upset and angry about it and the more I think we need to do about it. So that's driving me and, and the organization and, and the energy that we're harnessing around all of this. For all of us who, who are thinking about the next generation, that should get us all, I think, energized and get us into a frame of mind where we're trying to push to change some of these problems. And that requires radical thinking. And that's why this podcast, amongst many other things, exists, I think, because the organic, relatively slow way of changing systems that we've been used to just, just isn't feasible anymore if we're going to get to where we need to go and to solve some of these problems today. Let's focus in on your work now. First of all, Accountability Lab, tell us about how you founded this organization. You do a lot of work with Accountability Lab. That's very clear when you're kind of looking at the scope, huge scope. Now, how do you summarize kind of the mission and, and the work that you do? So the organization grew out of a realization that accountability is really the biggest problem that we face, and that's the large word. But what I mean broadly is the accountability of people in power to citizens, unless we can get that relationship right and make sure that those people in power are responsible and accountable, we can't solve all of the other problems that we face. Like I said, talking to people like those young men and women in Nepal, it began to become clear that well, there are symptoms to some of these issues and actually to address the causes, we need to take this up a level. And that comes to this accountability issue. If there is not a school in a community, that's not because of teachers not being trained necessarily. It's not an education issue. It's the money has been stolen or the community wasn't consulted. These are accountability challenges. And secondly, if, if we're going to work on accountability, we need to engage young people as much as we can because they are, of course, demographically the largest group these days in many, many countries. They are more willing to challenge systems and be a bit more radical, I would say. Um, they're more connected than ever before. And if it's a generational change, which I think it is, we have to work with that community. And then the third realization was, if it's all about accountability and it's all about young people, how do we engage those young people? And that's where the kind of approach is like the Integrity Icon campaign I mentioned come in. They have to be fun. They have to be interesting. They have to be positive. So we do at the Accountability Lab a lot of work with music, for example, a lot of work with film, a lot of work with creatives, technologists, other kinds of people to build what we call unlikely networks and to crowd in young people who can be disenfranchised, who can be politically disengaged, 
but they are the people we need to drive this forwards and to build the societies that they and we are going to live in. So we do a lot of that engagement, a lot of those sorts of campaigns. Uh, we do a lot of capacity and skills building and knowledge building. We have a an incubator, for example, a bit like a, a business incubator would support entrepreneurs, but for civic activists and people with really interesting ideas for accountability and engagement and democracy and all of these related issues. But now we're increasingly realizing and working on the intersection of those people and those ideas with government and working with, for example, young people within government, civil service training schools, those kinds of institutions to connect people who are in positions of power to those people outside the system to allow them to work together. And that's how you really begin to amplify this and create even greater change. And I'm happy to talk a bit more about some examples, but my role now has become advocating and, and pushing for these sorts of approaches and these kinds of ideas at the national and international level in different ways, including, for example, with the US and the UK governments and really trying to make sure that they understand and buy into these sorts of ideas so that we can move things forwards from that perspective as well. You've mentioned your engagement with musicians and artists and, and the like, and I'm excited for the listeners to hear that's coming up next which is that you decide to publish your strategy in rap form. Let's have a listen to a clip, shall we? And then you can tell us all about how that came about and what it means to you. Equitability, responsibility, inclusivity with positivity and force, diversity with generosity, giving delivery, accountability lab. We can dream of our freedoms, our hopes, and we plan. Got voice to rip and us for change. Five programs, yeah, we got the range. There we go. I wish we could play more. It's a great tune. Uh, everyone, you can look it up. So, Blair, tell us a bit about uh, that specific example. Whose voice did we hear there? And uh, I know it's part of a, one of the initiatives that you're running called Voice to Rep. Tell us a bit about that program as an example of what you're talking about. Yeah, so that was me that you heard rapping there? No, just joking. <laughs> uh, it was... Um, many talents. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully part of the talent is identifying incredible people like those we had there that you listen to, who are from a group of musicians that we work with in Zimbabwe. We partner there with another organization called the Magamba Network, who are also very into this kind of thing. And the Voice to Rep campaign that you mentioned is, as the name suggests, Voice to Represent, a program to support artists to use their voices around the issues that they care about and around the sorts of things that we've been talking about. And that's all over Africa in particular, but we're looking to expand it elsewhere as well. Music, of course, is an incredible way to reach young people. It's where they are. It's what they already listen to. It's a way to shift behaviors and norms and understandings. I mean, if you think about any important social movement change in history, there has always been some kind of soundtrack to it one way or another. So that's that's what it's all about. But the, the larger point and perhaps one takeaway for your audience in the corporate world is how do we make what could be a bit dry as engaging as possible? So a strategy is not necessarily something that people find massively interesting. I mean, if, if you're really into a particular organization, you might, but it shouldn't be something that's static. It shouldn't be a long document that no one reads. How do we make it a bit more engaging, a bit more practical, a bit more lived uh, and relatable to the audiences that we might like to reach? And so this was one small effort to do that and we'll see how it goes. But I think the larger lesson is know a little bit about who your audience are and put outputs out there in ways that will be relevant and interesting for them. I'm glad you started mentioning, you know, the lessons that we could learn in business, because I think I've never seen a business do something like that. Now, obviously, businesses are 
very good at tapping into culture to promote their products, to sell more. But it occurs to me that as we as a world need to move towards a more inclusive economic model, a more regenerative economic model, that bringing wider stakeholders, if you like, into areas of business governance is going to be critical. Do you agree that can you see the the business world having to go in this direction as well? I do, but it has to be authentic. The problem is that the corporate world doesn't do it in an authentic way. They hire X amazing celebrity to do something for them, but that celebrity doesn't necessarily adhere to their values and it, it's not authentic. We really work with these communities. These are people that are working every day to push for the issues that they're singing about and have very deep lived experience of some of the challenges but also some of the solutions and so it resonates a bit more and there's a bit more trust uh, and it makes sense for us to do that the challenges with businesses who are engaging in all sorts of really bad corporate behavior bringing in somebody that is popular to sing about how great you are it doesn't connect because people don't believe you so i, I think it has to be a process it, it's not a question of just picking someone and saying let's you know, let's let's try and get some publicity around what we do, which of course is a reflection of a slightly larger issue when it comes to reputation laundering or or washing of different kinds by all sorts of entities, which is a massive problem. And for us as consumers and citizens, it's also uh, a question of of us asking questions and saying, well, hang on, you know, actually, what what are you doing? And show us the information that demonstrates how you are being more climate friendly or being more friendly to democratic norms or whatever it is. And I would argue that, that the companies that are really thinking about this seriously are the ones that will prosper in the future because consumers are more aware, they're asking more questions, and they are willing to buy from companies that they think are responsible global and corporate citizens. And that's certainly what I'm trying to do. And is, I suppose one takeaway from all of this, a small thing we can do is, is just make sure that we're doing that. Let's shop from the Patagonias of this world who are really awesome corporate citizens instead of others that are not. Shout out to Patagonia. We've just recorded an episode with Alex who heads up the UK for um, Patagonia. You mentioned there, Blair, about transparency. Tell us a bit about how you approach transparency as an organisation because from what I've seen, it's quite all-encompassing. I'd say the way that you approach transparency. What does it? What does transparency mean at Accountability Lab? Great question. We like to think of ourselves as radically transparent uh, in keeping with this podcast. Appropriate. Uh, yeah, transparency and, and sunlight is the best disinfectant, as they say. We, as an accountability organisation, want to be very open about who we are and, and what we do and where our money comes from and all of these sorts of things because that's part of our approach. It's part of our values, and and I think there are times where radical transparency isn't always the best idea that you can imagine some of those maybe but for an organization like ours it it is part of the reason for doing that is not only to make sure that anyone can see exactly what we're doing but also to support other organizations in our fields to learn from us or to share any of our documents in ways that would be helpful for them or their networks for example we have a whole section on our website where we have all of our organizational policies, any kind of procedures, all of that kind of stuff, because there are tons of other nonprofits out there who are getting started and might need a terms of reference for their board of directors, for example, or a safeguarding policy. And it, it, it's pointless for them to start again from scratch. They could just take ours and adapt it. So let's do that. And that's part of what we see as our role as field building organization, because we all collectively within civil society have to help each other. We're all on the same path here and, and have the same goal, I think, of improving the societies in which we 
live. So for us, transparency is about openness. It's about allowing other, others to understand what we do and living by example, but it's also about hopefully supporting the field to grow. But just to say, finally, that I don't think transparency is enough. Accountability is more than transparency. It is about being responsible for some of the information that might be out there. And sometimes I think the terms get confused. People think they are accountable if only they put a report on their website. But if that report isn't, for example, in a format that is interoperable with different kinds of data, so it can be analyzed or it doesn't include all of the information that's needed, then it isn't really helping to build accountability. And so open data and open governments, for example, are not enough. There has to be work around that data and around that process to make it effective. I wanted to pick up on something you said there, which is that you have your policies and procedures, etc., sort of available to download as templates, essentially, for other organizations to use. A very kind of community-minded of you, I think, and a very good example of you living your values. I wanted to share an example. I will not name the brands in question, but I remember being in a conversation about creating a sustainability-focused community for a very large consumer electronics brand. And someone there said to me, oh, uh, we're not sure about working with you on this because you work with this other very large consumer electronics brand and they copy everything we do in sustainability. <laughs> and so I, at that point, I knew it wasn't going to go much further if they were looking at this sustainability, their sustainability initiatives with that same kind of corporate competitive mindset. You know, I just knew that that wasn't going to work. And so it, it seems to me that there's probably a lot of that thinking and structure to unpick in the business world. Do you ever see it in the third sector, a kind of a competition mindset as opposed to collaboration? I think it's in every sector. It's unfortunately, in some ways, I suppose, human, human nature and is not necessarily a bad thing. I think, of course, competing in some ways can make us all better. We can become a little bit complacent if there isn't any competition. Having said that, I completely agree with you. We have to collaborate better in the third sector in civil society. We, of course, generally depend on on donations, on charity, on, on foundations and philanthropy and some government grants. And they sometimes feel a bit zero sum. Either one organization gets them or the other one does. That can lead to all sorts of core behavior. And that doesn't make sense to us. I think it comes back around if we can be friendly and collaborative and support others. That grows the field. That brings more money into the fields that demonstrates collectively why this is important and it helps us make progress on these problems and that should help all of us uh, in the long run yeah it's not always the easiest thing to do but i think that kind of mindset is helpful in the private sector i can see why it could be a little bit more difficult it's obviously a bit more directly related to revenue and the bottom line but i still think that that kind of approach would hold and i agree with you that that when it comes to some of these critical global issues corporates need to begin to think beyond their own relatively limited, not just organization, but their own supply chains, their own value chains. When we talk to corporations, for example, about anti-corruption issues, they are often taking it extremely seriously, which is great, but it's in very much in relation to their own operations. If they work in a place like Nigeria, for example, where we do a lot of work, they'll talk about that. But if we say, well, what about the larger societal issues, the values, the ethics, the kinds of issues within government well beyond your particular sector that might be affecting how some of these dynamics manifest themselves, they're not particularly interested because it begins to get quite political. And once you begin to get into the politics, that could threaten business interests. So that there comes a point at which it gets quite difficult for corporates. And I understand that, but I would encourage them to begin to think much more broadly about what corporate interest is, because 
if they don't, I think they'll lose out and we won't be able to tackle some of these big, big problems that we face. Sounds like we need a naming and faming campaign for these organizations, Blair, I think. Absolutely. A corporate integrity icon. And, and there are some of those kinds of campaigns and there are corporates that are doing this really well. But I agree. There's a lot of things that businesses can do to encourage the right kinds of behaviors. And there is a bit of a shift. You may have seen that, for example, a lot of chief compliance officers are now being changed or, or the title is evolving into chief integrity officer, which I think is a good thing. It, it demonstrates that there's a bit more of a focus on these ethics and values and not so much on the rules and enforcement for the reasons I think we've discussed. It goes well beyond just having a law. All of the big corporate scandals that you can possibly think of. All of those companies had compliance departments and, you know, millions of lawyers that work on these sorts of things, but there were still massive scandals. And that's because the ethics weren't there, the values weren't there at some level. And that's the piece I think that needs a lot of work. Yes, that's really interesting. If you were advising a chief integrity officer of a large multinational corporate, what would be on your kind of to-do list for them on their first day, first year in the job? I think it would be mapping out where the challenges lie, really thinking through how to generate political buy-in for the sorts of things you might like to do. Uh, I get creative. There's a whole stream of thoughts around ambient accountability. And you maybe touched on this in, in previous podcasts with some of the behavioral change type conversations you've had, but it's how do you create an environment in which accountability becomes the norm in different ways? And there's lots of small nudges that you could make within any kind of organization to try and do that. I'd mainstream this in every way across all departments. It tends to be its own department and much like innovation and, and risk-taking, it can sometimes be siloed a little bit and it needs to be thoroughly mainstreamed from the top down. I'd get the, the CEO to really drive this forward in everything that she or he said, every, every big speech, every shareholder meeting, this is who we are, this is what is driving us. All of this kind of stuff, I think, huge, huge job for those that have it. But, but when you're working in some of these big corporations, potentially so exciting because I think it could transform the way that they operate over time. Is there anyone that you would name and fame now, a, a business that you think is really going about this the right way that you're aware of? No, we mentioned Patagonia. I'm not sure right now, but GE used to be thinking about this in quite interesting ways in Africa, really taking what they call the company to country approach. So... Part of the problem is, of course, that politically timeframes are quite short. Leaders come in, they might be in power for four or five years and then cycle out. And so there's, from a lot of corporations, there's often a rush to build relationships with new administrations and get the deals done to operate in those particular contexts. And they said, no, we're going to take a hundred year approach. We don't mind. Administrations are going to come and go. We are going to build relationships at every level and really take that long term approach, which I thought is really sensible because then you don't become wedded to deals with particular political organizations or administrations and you can you can really think strategically about what that means over time for your business i think there are yeah a few ben and jerry's as well known for being pretty ethical these are the kinds of organizations that i think we need to highlight a little bit and to learn from absolutely thinking about your huge body of work with accountability lab do you have anything that you're most proud of? What lets you lay your head on the pillow at, at night and think, oh, good job today, Blair? There's a lot. Generally supporting the incredible people that come through our programs and, and some of the kind of campaigns and projects that we've talked about is amazing. Seeing them succeed, seeing them in all the best places, making changes is really epic. And understanding that we have in some small way perhaps created a bit of the 
the learning or a bit of the support that has allowed them to do that is great. But I'll give you one specific example with the Integrity Icon campaign that we talked about, which is now in 13 countries all around the world. One of those is Pakistan, which is a place that I used to live and love very much. In 2018, there was a young woman in Balochistan, which is a, a very conservative part of Pakistan, who was the first district officer in that province that was a woman. She's called Batul Asadi. And we found her as part of the campaign. As I said, we go out there and ask citizens to nominate. And so she was nominated. We had a panel of judges that selected the top five. She was one of them. So we made films about her. We did the whole process that I explained and she was one of the winners. And her video went viral. And now there are 11, I think it's 11 female district officers in that part of the country. And we've spoken to a few of them. And they all said it's because we saw Batul's video and we realized that not only that women could succeed in government in what is a very male-dominated place, but also that you can have integrity and still serve in government. There's this perception that the government is completely corrupt and that's not the case. So what this has done is changed the face of government in a place where I think that is unexpected and, and incredible because now all of these women are pushing for more gender-friendly public services, government that is aligned with the interests of women. So it's that kind of thing that's really, really encouraging because we are creating space for other kinds of voices. We're supporting more fair and equal societies and that in the end is what it's all about. Fantastic. Well, congratulations to you and your team for that really measurable and fantastic change. I'd like to ask you a question about you as a leader now and when you set yourself the goal of being radically transparent and championing accountability. What does accountability in, in leadership look like to you as you lead your organisation? Good question. So first of all, I think leadership is the collective effort. I happen to be in a certain position in that the organisation started with me, but from the very outset, I've tried to build collective leadership and we have collectively owned. The organisation is extremely flat. We are what we call a translocal network. So each accountability lab is registered locally in the place that they work. And then the people that run each of those labs and myself and some others on our team, we collectively manage that entire network together. So it is quite radical in that way. It's not in any way top down. And I'm not really the decision maker. I, I have conversations with others who are also decision makers. And then we talk about the way that we're going to move forward. It's a co-leadership model. And I think generates accountability because it's not vertical accountability. It's horizontal and we all hold each other accountable. We do 360 degree reviews of performance, you know, all of, all of these sort of practical things that mean that it's I hope, really created a sense that we are all in this together and that we all own this. We create opportunities as much as we can in every possible way for everyone to learn as much as they can, to to get to the places and spaces that they might like to be in, like conferences or, or other sorts of things. So there's buy-in and there's energy behind everything we're doing. And again, that I think helps to build accountability and builds buy-in to what we do. And then we start at every point with our values. Those are what guide us. They are our, our shining star. And if we're ever unsure what decision to make, we say, let's go back to our values. What would our values suggest is the right thing to do here, which sounds a bit fluffy, but it's so key. And, and I don't think that many organizations actually do that. And we have regular conversations about what those values are and what they mean and, and why they're important and how they might differ across different contexts because we work in a lot of very, very different and difficult parts of the world. And that, again, begins to help us at least understand different perspectives on accountability and, and how we might support each other if things are going badly or when we might need to make 
changes. So it's all of these bits and pieces and some of it is tangible and we have practical ways of doing it and others pieces of it are a bit more about ethics and values and, and culture and so we're constantly trying to learn about how other amazing organizations do this sort of thing as well. I'm glad you mentioned the values because I think this is a watchword in business at the moment. Not that it, businesses have had values for a very long time, but I think what you're talking about, true values-led decision-making is becoming more important and more critical in businesses, certainly. Could you tell us what your values are at Accountability Lab and then talk about how you might make a decision based on those values? Yeah, so we have a few, not too many. I think one mistake that organizations make sometimes is having too many or also having what they call values, but that aren't really values. So for example, we used to have innovation as one of our values, which I think is a really important approach to our work and a key part of what we do and the way that we go about things, but isn't necessarily a value in itself. We could have a bit more of a conversation about that. But the first is integrity. So setting an example of honesty and transparency in everything that we do, not accountability, actually. Again, I'm not sure accountability is much of a value uh, as a process, but integrity, I think, really gets to this idea that there's a value there around these sorts of things. Humility is another. I think we've touched on this a little bit. Recognizing that others know best how to create the change that we want to see and that our role is to support them and, and hopefully capitalize that if there's ways that we can do that. And that trust comes from humility. Trust does not come from suggesting that you know all the answers and imposing them. It comes from listening and learning and then perhaps asking questions in ways that can, can lead to collective progress. Practicality. So really being useful in the way that we interact, in the kind of tools that we're generating, really thinking through sustainability over time of, of what it is that we're doing. So many organizations in our space, because of the incentives within the system, start projects and then stop them when the money runs out. And that's great perhaps for a while, but then what happens? We really need to think, I think, in a slightly longer term way, but also really use our resources effectively. These are resources that come from donations from philanthropic organizations or governments. And so we have a responsibility to shepherd those in the best ways possible. And then the final one is collaboration or being collaborative. As we've talked about, we really want to build the field. We want to set an example, but also support others around us to grow and, and to open space for them to do the work that they need to do. And that's important because it's good for all of us and it helps us get towards the outcomes we're looking for. So one thing we do, or we've done recently, actually, which is quite interesting, was we got all of our teams to map their personal values against the organizational ones just to see where there might be overlaps or where they feel there might be some things that are different. And what was cool was a lot of them overlapped significantly, as you would probably expect. But what that told me is we've got the right kinds of people involved at this point, because once their personal and their professional values are aligned, that's when you really... I think, begin to supercharge your efforts and you can get people all on the same page, pushing in the right direction towards the organizational goals. That's really great. I'm going to steal that for staying on Giants. I think the mapping personal values against the company values, I imagine it makes it a lot easier to remember the company values as well. So Blair, we're coming to the end of our time together now. So we always like to lift you out of your day to day. I mean, the nature of your work, you have such a global view, so integrated in you know, real world change, which is quite exciting. But what's a little bit of a radical change in the world that maybe you don't influence with Accountability Lab that you'd like to see? Good question. So there are a few different ideas here, but one that I've been thinking about recently, which I'm not sure whether any of your listeners are into property and real estate issues, but one thing I've realized is that someone's house, of course, is the asset that they own that, that is the most valuable, presumably, that, that they have. And 
those assets can be used much more effectively to build wealth in societies. There's something here in the US, and I think, interestingly, they're only just starting in the UK called the Home Equity Line of Credit, which is essentially a credit card against your house. You can draw on that. You only pay for the money that you use, and there's an interest rate and so on. The point being that you, in the US, these are used quite frequently, and as long as they're used sensibly, it's an incredible way for people to tap into this asset that they own and use it to then build wealth in other ways. And so I've been thinking a little bit about how this would apply elsewhere in the world and how we can formalize property rights a little more effectively and then and then support people to use what they own to start a business or pay for healthcare or whatever it is that, that needs to happen. So that's something that's bubbling around in my brain. And if any of your listeners are into that sort of thing, I'd love to be in touch and maybe we can think it through together. Yeah, watch this space. So yeah, Blair's looking for some collaborators there. Lovely. So we are at the end now. It's been a fantastic conversation, Blair. Thank you so much. So the last question is always the same, which is that if someone's listening to this podcast who has a little bit of a radical idea for a business, for some work they want to do, for their personal life, what would your advice be to them to get it off the ground? I would say go for it. Start small and see what you can do. There's never the right time. It'll always seem like it's perhaps too difficult, but just start and it will grow. And if you've got the right values and the right approach, it will take off. So find good people, work with them to do it and come and talk to us if we can help. Thank you very much, Blair. It's been fantastic to talk to you today and hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please follow us on your podcast platform. If you'd like to appear on A Little Bit Radical or have an idea of someone we should speak to, please email podcast at standingongiants.com or get in touch with me on LinkedIn. You can search Rob Fawkes or search Standing on Giants and you'll find me there. Thank you very much and speak to you next time. Mm -hmm.